you know, I guess I would think of something like The Grapes of Wrath, which is one of my favorite novels. It's asking us to reflect, but it's really asking us to look at this thing and see it as it is. And science fiction asks us to see what we're not looking at to begin with. So I think that that distinction is a wonderful entry point to get teens in particular who are really starting to flex those critical thinking muscles, thinking about their world and the possibilities. Everybody, Duke's here in my camper. Today is my last day in Cape Hatteras where I've been for nearly six weeks and I need to pack up and go. And it has been raining all morning. My stuff's wet. <laughs> and I've been hoping the rain was going to stop so I can dry out some of my stuff before shoving it into my truck and getting on the road. Um... The forecast said the rain would be stopped by now, but it is still coming down. Hopefully it's maybe abating a little bit. So yeah, kind of a bummer, but that's life on the road sometimes. There's a lot of beauty. There's some adventures. And yeah, sometimes you're at the mercy of the elements. Uh, luckily, I can cheer up when I think about this episode that I'm about to intro for you right now. Um, this is part one of our two summer reading specials where we bring you recommendations and discussion around summer reading. And today we asked two friends who are high school English teachers to join us on the show. And each one of them uh, will recommend a book that they think would be particularly good for summer reading for a, a you know, a high school student, a teenager. Um, these are books they've taught. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but Chris Bagg, our co-host, uh, was also a high school English teacher at one point in his life, too. So there are going to be three high school English teachers on the call. I'm the only one who isn't, um, although I do have some experience teaching um, high school students in other contexts. Um, I'm also the only person who um, knows or knew all three of these people uh, prior to this conversation. So it was really fun. Uh, to hear um, some creative, talented people who love books meet for the first time and have a really delightful conversation about books and what teenagers appreciate in books. Um, so yeah, let's just get right into it. Um, what you're going to hear is the two teachers introducing themselves and then introducing their books, and then we're going to dive into it. So we're going to start with Lindsay Lajoie. Um, Lindsay will introduce herself, then Adam Brock. He'll introduce himself, we'll hear about their books, and then we'll be into it. Uh, so I really hope you enjoy, and let us start with Lindsay. All right, so um, I was a secondary English teacher for about 10 years outside of Portland, Oregon, and also on the East Coast in North Carolina. And I recently have stepped back from my career in order to be a stay-at-home mom but uh, also reader. So now I'm reading more than I ever did. And it turns out you just you know have to quit your job and then you can read all the books you ever want. So who knew? So that's what I'm up to these days. That sounds awesome. What about you, Adam? 
Uh, sounds good. Still have a job. Um, <laughs> try to read when I can. Um, my name's Adam Brock. I am a, I'm a, a secondary English teacher, high school English teacher in Los Angeles. I teach at a school called Mar- Marshall High and a uh, beautiful little gothic building in uh, Los Feliz in Los Angeles. Um, and yeah, before that, I was a musician. I still am a bit of a musician, but I don't do it as much as, I, as I'd like. Uh, I'm the only one who knows all all everybody on the call, and so for the uh, Chris and Lindsay and I were chatting before you got here, Adam. So just also in kind of an earlier phase of my life, when I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, sort of in my first radio job, Adam was around post college. Um, local sort of raconteur, bartender, musician, and always in like two or three bands, and those were always the best bands. I think everybody would agree. Well, one one of them was yours for a while, so like that's you know <laughs> for like a night, but that was a great night. It was a great night. It was great. So uh, everybody here is super creative, and I'm really excited uh, to bring all of you together. And what we asked both of you to prepare was a reading recommendation. And I feel like this could go to other secondary teachers or it could also go to parents of uh, kids who are roughly in that age group uh, because this is part of our summer uh, reading series. So, uh, Lindsay, what are you recommending? Okay, so I went with Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. Great. And Adam, what are you recommending? Uh, I'm recommending Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea, the first Earthsea book. And so let's start with Never Let Me Go, which I am also, by the way, reading right now. And I'm about halfway through. And Lindsay, I would love it if you gave us something of a, a summary or recap, although I'm realizing with this particular book, it's kind of a mystery book. The premise of the book in and of itself is partly a mystery. So I'm wondering if you can give us enough of a recap that somebody who hasn't read it could get an idea of it without kind of giving away, you know, the major premise that we learn roughly halfway through the book. Yeah. Well, I've taught this book and I'm so excited because I know that Adam, you just did. And I can't. I literally finished this week. So, so I can't oh, wait to hear awesome. all of your students. But great. my, yeah. you know, I would never reveal to the kids like what this book, you know, the real, what it's about. So I would just say, oh, it's about some kids at boarding school. That's it. Mm. Mm. Like, oh, okay, that sounds boring. I'm like, it sure is. Why don't you just start it and read it? <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's what I would sum up. It's a first person narration of a woman who is an adult and she is what's called a carer. And then I would say, you'll find out what that is once you start reading. And she's thinking back about her childhood friends and the experiences that they had. And then I kind of put the period right there because it's a book you really don't want to give away. And that's why I thought it was such a good one for summer reading because I hate kids who spoil books. They're the worst. (laughs) At least least if you have summer to scatter them to the winds. I mean, they're connected by social media, but they're not as connected as, you know, people would have you believe it. They have the opportunity to experience it on their own because it has that dawning, eerie dread from page one. And you really just want to let kids get into it and figure it out. And I really enjoyed it as they were reading and coming in and just growing increasingly unsettled. (laughs) The book is really creepy. Like, it sure is. I don't know. It sure is. I'm not going to be spoiling a separate piece for anyone here, right? We've all all read a separate piece. Another book I've taught in the past, yeah. um, which um, starts the same way that, that Lindsay's, you know, hook for Never Let Me Go started. But here's some kids at boarding school. 
when I uh, when I read that in eighth grade, uh, I opened up my school uh, my school provided copy of a separate piece, and sitting there on the title page was a handwritten inscription that says. Finny dies. <laughs> <laughs> and so Lindsay, that, that student, <laughs> so just, it was like triggering you like 30 years ago at this point, just being like, I'm going to get that Lindsay LeJoie. Get her. Yeah, this is the worst infraction. Spoilers get sent out of the room. Like, don't. I just like how 20th century that spoiler is, you know? It, like, makes me think about, like, you know, spoilers in caveman era where it's, like, the bison, the bison gets speared, you know? Like, it's bad. I guess, Lindsay, one question. I think you did a really great job. Um... The the book does have this creeping sense of horror, but my observation is it's kind of slow. It's not a like, you know, one of our recent examples was Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, where you're sort of hooked by the first sentence and you're like, oh man, I'm being thrown into this wild world, which is maybe something that I would have expected you would have wanted from an assignment to particularly, you know, we have this idea that kids these days don't pay attention to anything. So I'm just wondering, like, why did you choose a book? Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a hard start. Like, it doesn't... Well, you know, I have to put on my adult hat for a second and almost kind of, like, pause and say, okay, so listen, it's not his best. We know it's not his best. <laughs> and I want to say that before I go on to why I think it's great for this sort of assignment because it just appeals to teens. And the mm. way I'm about to pitch this book is gonna make people not want to read this book. So I almost want to say, don't don't listen to me. You know, unless you're unless you're 18 and younger, forget what I'm about to say. But you have a first person narration female, and she's looking back on her events as a teenager in yeah. dystopia society. I mean, that's every other book teens are picking up these days ever since um, dystopic fiction has has really exploded in a in a big commercial way so it's a it's a softball pitch for kids because it speaks to them in that way and kids love a mystery hmm. um, and when you promise them that there is going to be the fulfillment of answers and there's something going on usually that rope is enough to pull them through and the book is pretty slim it's mm -hmm. easy reading um i don't find the lexile particularly difficult so even though it is is slower it's not intimidating you pick it up and that's a nice slim paperback you know a kid feels like they're not being tortured on summer vacation it's not david copperfield which i love <laughs> but <laughs> you know it's it's not that brick that they dread do you remember that feeling you go to the bookstore when you get your summer reading list and you'd walk up and be like what has been assigned to me and you pick up the monster bullshit book that was like two inches <laughs> thick. you knew you weren't gonna read it but your parents made you buy it like it's not that book so um that's my my first push is that it's really appealing for kids of that age but also it appeals to my style um, teaching where I really want it to be a student-centered discussion and it asks big questions. And what I really love about it is that it allows you to start with easy, immediate questions related to the plot. So I don't know, are we allowed to do spoilers on this? We're, we're sort of trying to avoid uh, the spoiling the premise of this particular. I mean, if it's if it's I can do it. I can do it. if you can do it. I mean, I think I think one of the things we could say is that these kids are being prepared for a future, and we increasingly get the sense that that future is disturbing. Yeah. Okay. Nice job, Jesse. So 
with that in mind, we can start with that premise and ask kids like, well, what do you, uh, how do you feel about what's happening in this situation? And then you can just scale it out so much bigger. And what I really like to do is push the kids to not be in the position of our main characters, but put yourself in the position of the society on the other side. Mm. How much are you willing to let other people suffer if it improves the quality of your life? And mm. that's what I love about science fiction. You know, it asks us these questions. And with teenagers in particular, it, it gives them something immediate and understandable that they can latch on to. You know, especially if you start, if you have older kids and you can hit them with harder hitting questions, you know, like, how would you feel if you could give your grandmother 10 more years in your life? Would you do it? You know, and these are the questions that the book asks because that's what's happening in in the world at large. And we can take it and apply it to just about every situation, you know, and, and that's really great. So once you do that, it opens up that book. And even kids who don't read the book can then be part of that discussion and become critical thinkers engaging with the ethics of it. So it gives us a lot of doors to walk through, even though it is slower climb up to that big reveal and understanding. It occurs to me, too, as you're talking that when I was that age, I really enjoyed books that depicted the world of adults as being untrustworthy. I was being assigned a book by my teacher that sort of suggested that maybe I shouldn't trust my teachers. And, <laughs> and, and I remember liking that, you know, maybe reading like The Awakening or even a separate piece, you know, that sort of feeling of like, maybe the adults aren't playing straight, you know, with, with kids because uh, often adults aren't playing straight with kids, you know? And, and anyway, I'm really curious, Adam, about your experience teaching the book. Uh, yeah, I'll talk I'd about love that. to chime in on a few of those ideas. I will. I'll also say just to what you're saying, like reading, teaching a lot of coming of age books in ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade. You know, like we have that conversation a lot in our class. And like one of my favorite things I remember telling students, and like you know, is that like we're all just like faking it, and like that's the difference between. I feel like in all these books of coming of age, like when you realize like. One of the biggest things you realize growing up is that the grown-ups in the room are not the grown-ups in the room, you know? Like, we're all just full of shit. Like, we're all just, we went to school, like, doctors went a little longer, you know? Like, we're all kind of like, you know, like... I'm we were all drinking too much until 2 a.m., trying to play in bed. No, we're just like, we're all just doing our goddamn best, you know? Right. And we're just like them in that way. And and I think that, that they appreciate understanding and talking about that. And I agree that they like... They like um, sifting through the sort of distrust of adulthood. Did your did your students like this book? Yes, they did. Um, and I will say, and, and I agree with what Lindsay said, and what I'll add to that is that something one of my students came in one day was, uh, she came in one day saying like, well, first of all, I'll just say like, this book is fire, Mr. Brock. This book is, this book is fire. And, and basically this book is fire because it's basically straight gossip. And that's what she said. This is straight gossip. And she's speaking to something that I think, and maybe Lindsay can chime in with this, but like one of the things my students liked is that, yes, they're being blank, I'll leave out for the spoilers, but they're being prepared for this, you know, whatever disturbing future, as you mentioned. Um, but beyond that, they are teenagers stabbing each other in the back in social circles, and my students ate that shit up. Um, they loved that part of it. They came in one day and I had to postpone a discussion for various reasons and one group was like oh we're dying to talk about this ruth is such a bitch <laughs> um, and, that, and like and i was just like mm. 
was like, hold that thought. Um, but they, they identify with that element of it. So yes, I agree with everything Lindsay said, the big questions. Like this is a book about, um, I mean, what life means and like, what's like, is it worth it to be alive if it's for this purpose or this thing or, and that's all you get. Um, and, and that was interesting to them. And I agree with Lindsay that some of the people who didn't read all the book, but instead just read the spark notes and got through it, which let's be honest, students do that. A third of the kids in the room do that, maybe half. They also were able to grapple with the, the philosophical and psychological elements of the book. Hmm. Even, even just using the plot as a touchstone, they're able to engage. This is not a book that, um, it's not like a great Gatsby where you're te teaching the book at a sentence level where it's like, let's look at the style, the imagery, the this. It's a book about big ideas and storytelling. Um, and so I don't teach it the same way. I'm sure Lindsay didn't either. Like you, we just found a different way to teach this book. But yeah, it, the, the kids, they did like it. They liked it quite a bit. I find that it's the book that if the kids didn't read it, it creates in them that feeling that they missed out and they're more likely to read the next book. Oh, and nice. sometimes mm. books like that are just super valuable because it's like Adam said, a whole bunch of your kids aren't going to read the book ever. And as an English teacher, you can get really frustrated about that. And you do. But at the same time, you still have to have that entryway open of how are we going to get those kids learning and engaged with us regardless. And so it's just a phenomenal book for that purpose. And then once the mystery reveals and they find out that the book was about that, you know, now they're like, oh, well, I would have read it if I'd known. Oh, too bad. You know, too bad. Yeah. Um, next so I've, I've got a question for you guys both, seeing that you both taught it. Uh, I used to teach high school English. You know, the thing that I always valued about teaching books like this is that you got this wild perspective from kids that you just would never have thought of yourself. Can you think of a uh, question or a statement or an opinion about um about never let me go that one of your students had that just really surprised you or made you think about the book differently that is a good question um i had a one uh young woman it's the only thing that's kind of immediately popping out to me she said i wish they never revealed what was going on mm. she's i wish i wish i didn't know Huh. I thought that was so, her perspective was she had said she felt sick when she understood. Mm. And I thought, um, I'm kind of, I can be like, kind of, let's really get to it. You know, let me shove this book in your face. But I'm kind of, <laughs> that's the point. Yeah. You're supposed to, because you have to know. And I know Adam's choosing Earthsea. I'm glad it's spoiler free, Adam, because I'm reading that in September. I've had the anthology sitting on my bookshelf for so long. So don't spoil Earthsea for me. But one of the things I like to teach prior to Never Let Me Go as a great scaffolding text is Le Guin's um, uh, Those Who Walk Away from Omelas. Yeah. yeah, where you can have a perfect world, but you have to know. You have to know what it's built on. And do the people in that society and never let me go know what this world is built on? And the answer is yes. And they still choose it and they live with it and they're perfectly content with it. And we make those same choices ourselves sure. in a whole variety of ways. And I mean, that's that's the heart of science fiction, right? I can't remember the quote, but I think it was Atwood who said that really good science fiction just takes kind of one thing in our world and turns that dial up to 10. It might be Le Guin even. Yeah, like, was it? She, it could, I mean, it, maybe it was Atwood, but Le Guin has an essay kind of like that where she makes, she has a kind of in defense of science fiction essay uh, that makes a similar point. I have one too. Um, 
I just thought I wanted to what Bag said, which is that um, when we finish the book, I like to read the last chapter aloud always when we finish books. It's just kind of a, a, a tick of mine. Um, and and, uh, and we so we did that. And in like a couple of periods, like there was this like sort of reverential sort of like silence and this breath, which I mm. eat up every time and I love. But then in this one period, um, I had a, a, a girl just, in fact, it might have been the same one who said Ruth is a bitch, who was just like, who at the very end in the, in this like little moment of silence, she was just like, well, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, that was the worst ending. And I was like, okay. And I had to like sort of take a breath and I was trying to figure out. And I, then I, then we had to talk about it. And I was like, why was that unsatisfying to you? And I, of course I don't want to give anything away, but it's like, if you finish the book, it does like end in this like place of like rich symbolism, you know what I mean? And I think that what the student wanted from having this conversation was like, she was mad that there wasn't more of a sort of like call to action kind of a, a vibe at the end. Like she wanted, she wanted like vengeance for the characters she wanted. And like, to me, like I'm very moved by this sort of like, I don't know, like deep sadness uh, that wells up in the last chapter of the book. And I think some students feel that and others are just like, we have to fix this, you know, like, why can't these people fix this world that they're in? And I just and I thought that that was really kind of sweet, <laughs> you yeah. know, and 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 kind of a, kind of awesome in a way. Uh, at first, I was like mad that she didn't like vibe with the poetry of the ending, you know. Um, I think it's, but I mean, I don't know the ending, but to me, that feels like a perfectly valid response to a frustrating ending. I mean, if she wants revenge, she should read the fifth season, which is what uh, Bag <laughs> and I are reading right now. I want to know how this particular student reacted to the lottery. <laughs> we did. We, I, I'm pretty sure we read the lottery. So did she like throw the book down and storm out of the room? I don't recall, but you ever watch the made for the educational program, educational society of America, like 30 minute video film version of the lottery. That sounds, no. that sounds very painful. <laughs> it's, oh it's God. And the only fun thing is that, um, one of the characters who has like one line, cause all the characters have like one line is, is a very young Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I was like watching it. I was like, that's Ed Begley Jr. Pretty sure that's oh Ed Begley God, Jr. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> who is probably like riding by your house right now on his bike. Since probably, he, yeah. he rides around Los Angeles on his bike, apparently everywhere. Uh, Lindsay, um, because Adam brought this up, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you. So we we now have Adam's um, sort of uh, teacherly tick about reading final chapters out loud. Uh, do you have something similar? Do you have a thing that um, was like the price of admission for your students, like that you do every year, no matter what? Oh, geez, um, I, this is <laughs> this is so corny. <laughs> I do like all the same time jokes that you'd make every year. And my my big thing that I always taught where I really shined was Shakespeare. I just uh, live and breathe Shakespeare. And so I have those plays like memorized start to finish. Thumbs thumbs up for Shakespeare. Shakespeare's yeah. getting some thumbs up for the Zoom. I I also like Shakespeare. I teach a class, Lindsay. I, I I like lobbied my school to let me teach a Shakespeare elective, and I do it. We have found each other. So um, I guess with that, you know, just having all all the right timings and all the right jokes. But I guess though, the price of admission is you have to be very kind to my very terrible drawings. So I go to the board and I'd be making 
the students take notes, I make them hand take notes and they hate it and it's going to happen and deal with it. And then every so often I would throw in intentionally hilariously bad drawings and I'd turn around in dead seriousness and say, this is on the test. And I'd see them immediately start <laughs> copying down my shitty drawings. <laughs> the way I did it, like when I did Life of Pi, doing the worst lifeboat you've ever seen, some sort of fucked up tiger eating zebra. I'm sorry, I don't know if I could curse. Oh, you can curse. It's fine. Yeah. Curse away. And, and then telling them, you need to copy this down. So, yeah, I think that was, that was my tick. Yeah, you gotta love fucking with kids a little bit. It's kind of yeah, like yeah. Where, where I get a lot of my rapport built, you know, like with that stuff. Like one kid today, we had to take some standardized test and it's, they all know what I think of it, you know? And one kid looks over and is like, Mr. Brock, is this graded? And I was like, yours is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and he like, and like he, I think eventually he got it, but for a second he like shit his pants, you know? I think we should move on to Wizard of Earthsea, uh, just, just to make sure we uh, stay on schedule. Adam, do you want to give us a quick recap um, Sans spoilers. Right. Um, yeah. And so, you know, my my pitch in general for this, too, is like this is night. You know, it's Ursula Le Guin, who, by the way, I'm also throw that out there. I'm currently reading The Lathe of Heaven because I have students reading it for another project. And it's like I could have talked about this. This is great, too. And and the left hand of darkness is probably what I will too. describe as my favorite book. When if you ask me my favorite book, that's usually my go to answer. Great. Love that book. Um, I've taught that in the past, too. A little more challenging. Um, so this is a book I've taught um, in ninth grade. Uh, and I think that, like, you know, it's definitely less challenging than some of Le Guin's, um, you know, speculative fiction and sci-fi. Um, and 1968 is when she wrote it. And it it predates by, what, 25 years or so, the Harry, the world of Harry Potter, which, like, whatever you want to say about J.K. Rowling these days, like, you know, she created generations of readers. Um, and what she did for, you know, kids and reading is just, you know, yeah, can't be understated. Right, um, right. But, you know, but, but you know, a lot of people were like, oh, he's a, he's a wizard in school and he's learning to be a wizard and it's never been written before. And it's a never, new idea. Yeah. And so she wrote a book in 1968 about a kid who, you know, finds his destiny and goes to friggin wizard school. I mean, like, so my, my, my sort of selling point to the students was this idea of like trying to grab them at the thing about them that that liked Harry Potter and kind of was like, you know, here's this. And, you know, in my pitch, I guess, is it's like, it's a young guy. It's a coming of age novel. Um, and, you know, he's in this little, little busted town in this archipelago uh, of islands, uh, uh, Earthsea. Earthsea is like a, basically, it's like an archipelago islandy kind of vibe. And one of the interesting things Le Guin sort of did was take the high fantasy, you know, Norway Tolkien model of, of mythology and flip the race stuff around. So like he's mm. the dark skinned, they're the dark skinned people and the, and the, you know, the light skinned people are the marauding Viking-esque people, which I feel like is kind of legit. Um, and they're the Historically threat. accurate. It's, yeah. So they're the <laughs> threat to this guy's society, this guy's village. And he, he learns kind of early on that he has this kind of special ability. And then there's like, there's all the kind of tropes of, um, of these stories, uh, you know, there's the the mentor figure, and then he, you know, realizes to reach his powers, he's going to have to learn learn to harness them, and he goes to a school, and then something bad happens at school, um, and in his grab for um, for more power, and you know, maybe not of the best motivations to impress someone, to show someone that he can do something bigger than himself, he unleashes something bad that he has to spend a long time trying to fix. Um, and so it's a growing up book. It's a coming of age novel. Um, 
but it's you know set in this fantasy world and it's about it's about magic and realizing who you are and what your purpose is and who your friends finding out who your friends are and it's all that great stuff um um, and why i like to teach it is because Le Guin is brilliant and there's just so much teachable stuff in this book and like I, I, I like to t I, I teach a lot about motif and symbolism and things like that and it's really rich with all those things and some of the most interesting and there's big philosophical stuff happening in this book too um, I always love when like every time you read a new fantasy book you want to know like how does this author deal with magic right where does their magic come from how do they how are they going to do it because it's the same tropes and it's like each one is like who's what's their hot take on magic well Le Guin's I think is fabulous for teaching a literature class because magic is language in this book mm. and that's incredible and it's been rooted in language in the other stuff but it really is language like to speak magic you have to know the true words for things the true names for things in this mm. book um, so magic is intricately linked with language and language is intricately linked with identity. So it's basically like, it's a book for teenagers trying to figure out who they are. Um, mm. and then beyond that, uh, the other cool thing that I like is that, um, the, the way she deals with magic is that it's this Taoist kind of approach where everything has to be connected. So if you do something over here and you make the wind go this way, like something's going to get fucked up over there. And so there's a great responsibility uh, in learning how to do this stuff. We can't just do it willy nilly or we're going to or we're going to screw the world. There are probably a lot of themes, but the three themes I just picked up on. And one is whether, you know, we're using the, the metaphor of magic, but language as power and language, the relationship between language and identity as a very, very powerful theme. Uh, the question of doing something in one place that's going to have unlooked for consequences in another place, which is very much a part of our reality as well, also very much a part of Never Let Me Go. And then also the observation that the protagonists are people of color, are dark-skinned, um, and the, the antagonists are light-skinned, do yours do you find that your students notice those themes on their own or do you find that you need to help them with that that's a good question i mean i think i think i tend to help them with it whether or not i've given them a chance to fully find those things i can't recall it's been a couple of years but i will definitely seed uh discussion questions with ideas like that it, it might just be uh you know finding a passage and then being like what is, what is this pointing us to and, and i think that a lot of astute students will find those things on their own and it's true it's like it does make you think about you know just that one simple detail of what she's doing with race kind of makes you kind of do a little survey of our, of our own history and sort of think about like how does this recast what we've learned about about you know colonization and, and colonialism and, and all that stuff and and they they are they're astute they catch they catch that stuff also in like 1968 i don't think you had a lot of white writers writing with dark skinned protagonists like that was you know it's probably more common now but that was very very unusual and i think it's also very unusual in like science fiction and fantasy at that point yeah. And I'm no expert, but apparently, like a lot of Ursula Le Guin's great ideas about anthropology are because her dad is a famous anthropologist from California. And, like, I've mentioned her, and being in California, it's interesting. The people around here know about her more, yeah. way yeah. more than I ever yeah. knew about wow. her. Because her, I think her dad was pretty famous um, in, 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 in some university out here, like a major head of an anthropology department. Alfred, Alfred Krober. 
Is that you know? Do you know about this guy? I don't really know much. Yeah, about I mean, I was an anthropology major. Yeah, he was like one of the major American anthropologists, uh, a, a disciple of Franz Boas. Uh, her mother also wrote the book Ishi, which was a kind of like microethnography of this man who was the last of his people who was like living in a museum in California. Uh, Theodora Krober, I think was her name, and she has one book. So Alfred Krober, I think, was the really famous American anthropologist. And gosh, it's been a long time, but like I definitely feel like anthropology is all over Le Guin's books. And she's thinking about how cultures interact together and how they're structured and kind of cultural encounter and like the power of language too, which was a sort of new form. Have you guys seen the terrible um, Studio Ghibli adaptation of The Wizard of Earthsea? Called Tales of Earthsea, right? And I I think that it's a bunch of crap. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like story, like different storylines thrown together. Oh no, I'm so ha- I'm so sad to hear that. It's bad. It's so bad. Oh. And you don't want it to be because it's Ghibli, right? But right. Oh, totally. It's did did Miyazaki direct it or somebody else in the studio? That's a great question. I want to say that he directed it, but I'm not sure. I don't want to slander his name. So I don't know. I love that we're talking about magic because that's something that Jesse and I were sort of like uh in, in a recent recording. Um, Jesse, Jesse sort of espoused a preference for science fiction over fantasy because of the magic problem. And when we talk, uh, when we do our second episode of the fifth season, um, that's one thing that I really want to come in, uh, guns a blazing about. But when you guys see magic in books and Adam already talked about it a little bit, like, how do you teach that to kids? How do you get from that moment of like, yes, this is magic, but like everything in a book, it's also standing in for something else? That's a good question, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, we definitely talked about it a lot in terms of, you know, a lot of this book, I mean, and fantasy can a lot of the times, and it might be reductive to say it always is, but like it can serve um, at a representative or symbolic or metaphoric level, you know what I mean? And so like, you know, essentially, I mean, what is magic? It's it's power, it's control, right? And so we can we can identify with those concepts as people, whether or not we're fantasy people, right? So it's kind of just like another means, another access to power. And I think that some people, they can understand it at that level and appreciate it at that level. So that's kind of one way of, of, of thinking about it. You're, you're right. It's like some kids, you know, if it's, if it's about like teenagers, present day, whatever, they're a hundred percent on board and you throw magic in. They're like, I ain't reading this fucking book. I don't like this. I don't, I don't care about it. And, but then again, like at the end of the year, there's always like a third of the room who is like, I'm so glad we read that book. It was great. And you just, and maybe Lindsay can speak to it. You can't, you just can't please them all. And you, so, and I, I have a colleague who is like, you know, it's really important as teachers to have projects uh, where you're letting students choose books. And I, and I try to do that as much as I can, because according to him, it's just like, you know, every year we can drag, these are his words, we can drag them through a couple of canonical works. Um, but if you don't create a love of reading amongst your kids, they're not going to, it's not going to perpetuate. And I agree with that. And, and And I will say that as much as I'm recommending this book, like, it really did it for like half of them. And then the other half were just like, nope, nope, big old long, don't believe this, waste of my time, magic, whatever. It, so that reaction certainly happens. 
Uh, I've got so many thoughts rolling around in my head based off what you said and then what Chris said and then what Jesse feels about with magic systems. Um, let me preface this all by saying my home library is my heart. And I have about 2,000 books. They're organized by genre and science fiction and fantasy are next to each other. And I put the Broken Earth trilogy, which starts with the fifth season, right between them. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Marvelous. Yep, yep. <laughs> exactly. Is yep. it science fiction? And um, now, now that takes me back to what Adam was just saying. Um, and then I promise I'll come back to Chris's question, which is I would have been one of those kids who was like, um, there's magic in this? I mean, I was the holdout who didn't read Harry Potter until ninth grade. And you got to remember that was coming out when I was in elementary school. So I was like poo-pooing it, magic, blah, 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 right? Because, you know, everyone goes through their phase where they're just a, a bitch. But anyways, happily, I'd like to thank an, you. I an anti-magic bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then being uh, a, a woman, science fiction was male. You didn't read science fiction. Mm. And the only science fiction that I saw guys reading in high school were the gore books. And I'd hear them talk about it and I'd see the covers. And so I had this vision of science fiction as being this world that I didn't want to walk into. And it wasn't until I read the Broken Earth trilogy four or five years ago that I even knew that science fiction had a place for me. And that's when I started my whole journey deep into the waters of sci-fi. So now that brings me back to Chris's question, which is um, when you asked it, I was racking my brain, you know, do I even teach anything with science fiction or magic? And uh, I really thought like, no, I really don't. You know, that really fell away, that falls away by the time you go to high school. And mm -hmm. when you asked that, and I came to that realization, I thought that is a real shame. And I didn't really realize it till you posed that question. And the only thing I could think of was um, Lord of the Flies, which has the scene with the talking pig's head, which is maybe as close to magic or supernatural as you get. And kids would always ask, is this real? Is this really happening? Which is a really great, I think, um, sort of entry point to talk about mm -hmm. what is magic within the universes of the books we're talking about. What do we mean by real? What is tangibility? What is physicality? How real is this magic system? What are its consequences? And even when I then struggle and think back to middle school, I can't think of too many other texts. You know, fantasy and science fiction, I think, are really poo-pooed as genre fiction, not serious literature. We don't teach it. We don't go in that corner. Check out those books on your own time. And I'd really like to see that change. We do. I mean, I feel yeah, I completely agree. I think that, like, for some reason, certain things have gotten a pass. And I think that, like, in terms of what we teach, and I think it's often short stories. Um, mm. Like, you know, like, like, like the golden era of sci-fi is still kind of... Monkey's paw. Right, right. And, like, I bet you've taught, like, The Velt by Ray Bradbury or, or, one of, or like, There Will Come Soft Rains. So, like, they're, and those books are often in the lit tech book, textbooks, you know what I mean? Like, they're often anthologized. And there's something, so there's something about that. But, yeah, I agree with you, Lindsay. Like, I feel like when it's a few hundred pages, people are like, no, we couldn't push that on them for that. Right, like you're, you're allowed a seasoning of science fiction. Yeah. There you ask for it for the whole meal. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this was related to what you were talking about, but like the, you know, when I was growing up, like Ray Bradbury, Martian Chronicles, stuff like that was my sort of first foray into all of that that made me fall in love with it. Uh, yeah, but anyway, you were talking about magic systems. I, I'm, I'm, I'm also always really intrigued by those, and I feel like it's one of the signs of like, 
you know, good, you know, creative authorship in these, in these things is like what people who pull that off when, when, when it's real in, in, in the, in the confines of the book, in the world itself, like that's the reality, like the reality has to hold up in the, in the reality that's presented in the book. So when students are like, this isn't real. And it's just like, well, it's not real out here, but it's, if it feels real in there, that's like, we, like, that's the physics of this, you know? And I'm willing to be the anti-magic heel for the sake of this discussion that Chris and I are going to have in our next episode, too, and even for now. Although what I, w- I do to me, magic is interesting to me when the physics of the magic is interesting, you know, and and when and I believe one of the things I read A Wizard of Earthsea 20 years ago, and I remember liking the physics of the magic then. And I, you know, Tolkien was my entry and I'm probably very forgiving of Tolkien um, um, and the writing's beautiful and I probably just kind of like accepted the magic. I probably, if I read Tolkien today, I'd be like, this magic's stupid, it's just elvish. There is a way in which magic as a system can have a kind of physics, you know, and it can be the, the province of scholars and it can be a stand-in, say for academic knowledge or engineering or physics. One of my favorite writers is China Mielville and he has this idea of thaumaturgy. Um, which is kind of like his version of magic, but it's sort of like steampunky technological magic that's some common that is magic, but it's also technology, you know, in the sense of tools and craft as well. Uh, and I I enjoy that application of it. Um, and you know, Adam, I've read your uh, your draft novel, uh, and I I like the physics of the magic in that book as well, which which all of you will soon be familiar with, I'm sure, one day. Um, <laughs> totally. That you just reminded me of a quote, and I, I'm trying to recall. You've probably heard it before, but one of these authors once said that like. Um, that whatever like magic is you know if you go i'm butchering this but like if you go if you show people in the past the future like technology is indistinguishable from magic right i think it's any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and i think it's arthur c Clarke. nice okay so what i was going to say is like i um what you were talking about made me think of a really cool place where these things uh, come together because I just taught a different book in AP language called H's for Hawk by Helen McDonald. Mm, mm-hmm. It's a, it's like a memoir kind of situation. Um, but it brings in lots of different modes of writing and disciplines, but it becomes a book about, oddly enough, it becomes a book about TH white, the writer of, um, the once and future King. Yeah, so in yeah. some ways it becomes a biography of him and it's fascinating for that reason. Cause I, I love the once and future King. Um, and, Anyway, what I thought was cool about that is that, you know, if y'all are familiar, you might be familiar with it, but what he did with Merlin in that book um, to make him his own uh, and to and basically to kind of um, provide a if you call if you want to a sort of logic to his magic is to make him live backwards in time. So essentially his magic is the technology of the future because he's living backwards in time, which Mm. I just thought was a brilliant sort of way of doing and the idea that he was like in a cave for all of time actually goes back to the the scriptures as you were of uh, Mortartur Mortartur Chrétien de Troyes any of that stuff uh so anyway there was it was a brilliant choice I thought but that's a way that he married those kind of concepts um which I thought was cool yeah I think like Mallory does suggest that Merlin lived backwards I think and I and I and I think um, Steinbeck, which in his uh, Arthur book, which is just kind of like a 
sort of plain English translation of Mortartar, I think also did not has... know that existed, but now I'm you're going to ask about summer reading, but there it is, baby. Okay, that is my favorite. So you guys are talking to a huge Arthur fan girl. Um, uh -oh. I, I felt, <laughs> you opened the door. I fell deep down <laughs> the waters of this, and uh, I was really fortunate that in my graduate studies, I actually read a lot of the original medieval stuffs. But this is my plug. So Steinbeck's actually isn't a translation. Mm. It's his own unique retelling, and he comes up with his own stories. Mm. He never finished it, and he gets right to Lancelot's um, moral fall. Do we do we spoil King? I, th I think it's okay. I think it's okay. I think <laughs> it gets to the point. Lan Lancelot has a disturbing future, as we said about. Uh, yeah. yeah, the cave the cave paintings point to the. Lancelot makes some choices. He's about to spoil the gospel. A lady, of I think her name rhymes with Genevieve. I don't know, but. He does that and, uh, you know, he, he walks away from it and the text becomes just, it's more despairing than T.H. White's work, which I, mm. I love. And yeah. it's, it's so solemn that Steinbeck kind of abandons the text and mm. walks away from it. And then he, he dies before he ever returns to it. So if you get a chance, it starts off the most wonderful, light lighthearted, comedic. I mean, Steinbeck at his funniest and it just transforms in 200 pages into something that is sublime. What is it called? Yeah, that sounds awesome. How do I find it? Oh, I think it's called the Thanks. the Acts of King Arthur and His Knights. It's some somewhat of a cumbersome title. Did anyone read Lev Grossman's The Magicians series? I pitched it to Jesse as uh, one of our one of our draft series was going to be just called Magical Kids. And, I enjoyed uh, that trilogy, yeah. and I, I I could be wrong, but I think it's him that I was looking to see if that guy's up to anything, and I think that's the world he's doing. I think he's doing an Arthur thing for his next. Yeah, the magicians is is you know like every I I have not read Harry Potter. It it has not like I just I missed it. I'm I'm actually reading the first book now um, aloud, which is really fun. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean the magicians is sort of like what I kind of hoped Harry Potter would be like. Um, and it's uh, because it's, I mean, I think, you know, to get back to the question about magic, like, I mean, it's so funny, like the magic in Tolkien, there's not much magic actually. <laughs> like the rings, they don't do shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's one of the, I mean, the thing about the magic in Tolkien is it's so clearly. like I mean, so Gandalf uses a sword for God's sake. <laughs> Subtle, and like subtle magic, y'all. Like, what does Glamdring even do? He fights he just the Balrog with his magic. sword. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help. But I mean, it's so. I mean, like, it has an the, elvish the, name, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like so clearly a metaphor for like power that can be that can go astray, you know. And that's sort of the Tolkien magic thing, you know. It's just kind of like sitting there right on top of everything else. Um, I'm just uh, like intrigued by, you know, what does this particular author think that magic means? And in the magicians, like magic is like a really dicey thing to get a hold of, you know? And I think some of the more like adult books that kids would really enjoy are those books where like you really see that magic is, you know, whether it's puberty or adulthood or anything like that about like, joining the world um you know magic is kind of the things that we really hope we would be able to do and of course like that conflict between like hope and truth is like like the central plank of literature 
Yeah, it is. I mean, it, we're also in the nuclear age too, and so like the rings of power. Are, oh yeah. I really do like um, Jonathan Strange and Mister. I was gonna mention Norrell. that. Yes. And and that is about the rediscovery of magic, right? Like that, and sort of the scholarship, and this kind of weird frenemyship between these two guys who are bonded over their love of magic, even though they have a personality conflict. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm supposed to be the anti-magic guy, so uh, maybe I sh- maybe I shouldn't have said that. I I love how n- many nerdy rabbit holes we discovered in common in this conversation. And I didn't I didn't even get to plus one Lindsay's Shakespeare thing. <laughs> we all thumbed it up. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> tomorrow and tomorrow. Oh, I'm reading that right now. I'm reading tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. tomorrow. It's and, really and also, good. Oh, and, yeah, that was a great one. And everybody's great with supernatural in Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Like, I know, right. In, but yeah. not in anything else. Um, There's a question that that Jesse wrote that I think is a really good one that do you guys think that sci-fi or speculative fiction engages teenagers differently? Differently than? Than books about this sort of recognizable now time and place. I was just going to spit out then the grapes of wrath. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great. great. Kids should be engaged by it. You know, naturalistic books that, yeah, I mean, Grapes of Wrath would be at this point sort of a historic novel, even though it was contemporaneous, but, you know, sort of naturalistic books about the world that is familiar to them. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, science fiction and speculative fiction, um, are they they the same thing? I mean, Margot Atwood feels that they're not, so I don't know. Who am I to argue? But um, Hmm. it asks what if, and I just don't think that there's an easier question to ask a teenager to get them interested in reading something, then what if, and you know, I guess if you, you threw out Strange and Oral, so this is why now I'm thinking of the Napoleonic Wars. What if it's the Napoleonic Wars, but there's dragons? You know, yeah. Tamerlane, right? You know, what if, and I was about to spoil, never let me go. So <laughs> I myself in. But I think at their core, that's what they ask. And when they ask us that, it allows us to re-engage with our world, see it through a new lens or a new perspective in a way that we don't normally, you know, I guess I would think of, you know, do we do we call it high literature, an upper middle brow, something like The Grapes of Wrath, which is one of my favorite novels. It's asking us to reflect, but it's really asking us to look at this thing and see it as it is. And science fiction asks us to see what we're not looking at to begin with. Very well put, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that distinction is a wonderful entry point to get teens in particular who are really starting to flex those critical thinking muscles, thinking about their world and the possibilities. That was an awesome answer. It was a great (laughs) Adam, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, it just it just made me think uh, for some weird reason. My mind also just went I just wanted to throw out that I recently taught um, Another fun little short story that is worth throwing out there, uh, which is Bloodchild by Octavia Butler, because someone mentioned. Wow, you taught that to high schoolers. Yeah, it was cool. Wow, that's <laughs> job security. <laughs> Do you all know? The, I mean, Lindsay clearly knows that story. Do you guys know that one? I don't no, know that story. We just read for this podcast uh, Parable of the Sower, and I believe that was our both of our first introductions to Octavia. Yeah, which is pretty brutal. I mean, it's like, you know, dystopia. Um, and, and But I have colleagues who've taught that, which is, I think, worse mm-hmm. than Bloodshot. I mean, Bloodshot is, um, 
it, it's cool. I mean, it's kind of like alien, alien vibes, but it's like, I guess uh, it, it like, it's all those sort of philosophical things and it asks really great questions. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because, I mean, it's basically about these, like, you know, these Terrans, this colony of people and they're, they're, let's say they're working in close uh, relation with the people there who are hosting them at this planet. Uh, and the, let's just say the word host has a double meaning. Mm. Um, we, we're ho They're hosting us and we're hosting them, if you know what I mean. <laughs> there's, there's, it's, it's wild. Um, but the cool thing is, is, as a teaching document, like, you know, there's a, there's an article like a that I had access to. I don't know where I found it, but um, after we finished reading the 20 page or so short story, we had some questions and discussions. But then there's a thing with Octavia Butler, and it was like a lot of people think this story is this or that or that. But really, I just wanted to write a question where I asked, "What if?" And her, and that's what Lindsay was talking about. And then her, "What if?" for Bloodchild was, "What if it were the men who got pregnant?" They latched on to that, I think, in part because of those what-if questions, but also in part because it's kind of gory and bloody and kind of gnarly um, and, and thrillery. Um, shall we go to trivia? Um, so I'm going to give all of you. I'm going to give all of you a chance to guess. It's multiple choice. There's no prize. Uh, no googling, please. Uh, I'm very excited about this one because it very much touches on many of the themes that we've discussed. Um, Can I do what my students do? Maybe Lindsay will say it too. Which is, how many points is this worth, Mister? <laughs> Um, that's a teacher joke. 573 points. 573 points. Be credited. Yeah. Okay, so I was really... I love both of these writers that you have recommended. Ursula Le Guin and Kazuo Ishiguro, who I've only started reading recently. Um, and I was curious if they had crossed paths. Um, and so I did a little research, and it turns out that they actually had a little bit of a spat uh, a few years ago, obviously while Le Guin was still alive, which is a little bit sad, but also a little bit fun. And so my quiz for you is going, it basically Le Guin um, in her blog had some choice acerbic critical words in her uh, blog about Ishiguro. And um, my question for you is what was the inciting incident? And it's multiple choice. So uh, before before we do this, how are we going to answer in such a way? Ooh, this is a maybe... spoiler free episode, <laughs> as we have uh, done so far. How are we going to answer this in such a way? It doesn't uh, spoil we... the books that were maybe, but maybe each of you can chat me your answer in the chat feature separately, and then I will ah, give away yes. the answer, and then I'll reveal if there are any winners or losers. All right, so uh, I'm setting my uh, my chat setting to just Jesse. Um, so what was the inciting incident that pissed off Ursula Le Guin such that she had some choice acerbic words for Kazuo, Kazuo Ishiguro? Is it A, that Ishiguro referred to the Earthsea trilogy as young adult literature? Or was it B, Ishiguro would not acknowledge that his book, The Buried Giant, was fantasy? Mm. Or good choices, Dukes. Really good so far. I mean, it could be either of those. And well, that's just two. That's just two. Or he usually does four, which is brutal. I'm rating it into three. I've decided three, unless the fourth one is D. Larry Niven. Um, that's that's <laughs> right, my new yes, rule. That's the, it's Larry, it's Larry Niven, Niven all the way down. Way down. Is, is he the Ring? Is he Ringworld? Is he's Ringworld? He's Ringworld. Oh, indeed. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Ringworld. Few others. Is it C. Uh, Ishiguro? In a review of a late career Margaret Atwood novel, 
Um, and we should just say Margaret Atwood and Ursula Le Guin are very close friends or were very close friends. So in a review of a late career Margaret Atwood novel, Ishiguro wrote that it was, quote, reminiscent, even redundant of Atwood's earlier works, comma, but more overtly catty. I just hope you made that quote up. You know what I mean? That's what I hope. That's my hope that you just made that quote up. So I'm not voting for C for that very reason. I'm I'm trying to keep I'm trying to keep a poker face <laughs> trying not to break. Let's see. Am I getting any chats? Do you guys does anyone you need are. to hear? Does anyone need to hear them again? Want okay. It's different okay. than need. You want to why don't you say what people have guessed first? And yes. then that okay. will continue to build the suspense. Though I know what Adam guessed because he didn't follow the directions. I thought um, I was supposed he, to chat it. <laughs> to At, just just private chat. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. matter. We didn't want you. Okay. I taught a whole year on Zoom. I'm never doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> I did this for y'all. I was not. You know what I mean? I don't like Okay, so so Adam, of course, <laughs> guessed A, uh, that uh, Ishiguro referred to the Earth Sea trilogy as young adult literature. Um, Chris uh, guessed C, the caddy Margaret Atwood quote. Could, I couldn't pass that up. Lindsay guessed B. Oh, so this is great. One this of works. you is bound to be I'm right. Ready. I think Lindsay's right. I think it's B. I want to change my answer. Oh, no. No, yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in the chat. It's too I late. See it's it. in the chat. It's in the chat. You were influenced by Lindsay. Okay, so here is the blog post in question. <clears throat> Familiar folktale and legendary surface elements in Mr. Ishiguro's novel are too obvious to blink away. But since he is a very famous novelist, I am sure reviewers who share his prejudice will never suggest that he has polluted his authorial gravitas with the childish whims of fantasy. Respect for his readers should assure him that whatever the book is, they will honestly try to follow him and understand what he was trying to do. I respect what I think he was trying to do, but for me, it didn't work. It couldn't <laughs> No writer can successfully use the surface elements of a literary genre, far less its profound capacities for a serious purpose, while despising it to the point of fearing identification with it. I found reading the book painful. It was like watching a man falling from a high wire while he shouts to the audience, Are they going to say I was a tightrope walker? <laughs> I wish your audience could like see your head snapping as you read this. <laughs> I, it's so good. It is so this good. Is, like Ruth, like, Ruth from Never Let Me Go could not no, write not anything. That much of a bitch. Um, did y'all? Did y'all? Can we just? Can we just like you know, fanboy, uh, fangirl about Kazuo Ishiguro because he's like emerged he's as one of my favorite writers in the last like five years. Me too. Ma master of subtext too. Oh yeah. You know, and, and the and, slow and to, reveal to, of gravity, like of importance, and like yeah, you know, oh, it's brutal. I guess on and, the subject sci-fi, did you guys read um, Clara and the Sun by him? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Loved it. Loved, loved it. Loved it. Loved it. 
Um, put that on the list. Y'all mess yes. with that discon that unconsoled. Y'all mess with that like you know the the weird one. That's the one that like you know divides people. And it, like some people say it's the worst. Someone like said it was like the this is the worst novel of all time. <laughs> well, and after wow. after Ursula Le Guin's uh, trashing, how many of you are going to read the Buried Giant? I've read Which... it. I loved it. I loved <laughs> okay. it. Okay. I've read it, and it, I wasn't. I wasn't a fan. Yeah. It wasn't bad. It just, you know, for me, everything that he's done just is in the shadow of the remains of the day. Sure. So, uh, yeah. Remains of the day. I want to go one big. I want to go punch. read that review now. I want uh, Jesse send me the, the the link to that review because uh, she's like channeling Jonathan Swift. I will. <laughs> like you know what? I, I, I want to read Ishiguro's response, which is he starts out by saying something to the effect of like, I think she wants me, this is a little bit confusing. I think she wants me to be the new Margaret Atwood because he seems to think that Margaret Atwood does not like science fiction. Maybe that's a reference to what Lindsay was saying earlier. I don't know. But Margaret Atwood and Ursula Le Guin love each other. So, but he goes on to say, if there is some sort of battle line being drawn for and against ogres and pixies appearing in books, I am on the side of ogres and pixies. He said, I had no idea this was going to be such an issue. Everything I read about the buried giant, it's all, oh, he's got a dragon in this book. Or, oh, I so liked his previous books, but I don't know if I like this one. Uh, so, Lindsay, basically. Le Guin's entitled to like my book, or not like my book, but as far as I'm concerned, she's got the wrong person. I am on the side of the pixies and the dragons. So he's saying, look, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm fine with being called fantasy. That's not a problem. But he was expressing an anxiety that I think you guys have expressed in this conversation that because the book has fantastical elements, it may not be taken as seriously as literature. And, you know, that's an anxiety I bet a lot of writers have for right or wrong. Yeah. I think that a lot of like fantasy is like kind of it's showing up so much in other forms of media these days that I think that like people are jumping on board a little bit more, being more willing. Seems um, like I would love to see what some of y'all's choices for like I know that you've done a lot in this sort of like you know with you know up, you know upper middle brow. Like these are the sci-fi or speculative fiction authors and works that like that teeter between we can call them literary we can call them genre whatever and you've been doing those but like what are your fantasy versions of that because like there's something that have you guys read like the marlon james books that have come out in the past few years with the, the dark star trilogy no i mean they're you know they're put out on riverhead books which is like a very highly literary you know um you know publisher and they are they're they're dense and they're literary and they're they're kind of incredible and i'm just like you know like who are the people in that world like i think of mervyn peak have y'all messed with um the gormenghast books at all like no. from the 70s no no, no. yeah they're no. that's like the charles dickens of of like fantasy in my opinion cool. like it, it feel very dickensian and weird and the magic is like the magic is subtle it's poetry more than it is technology you know what i mean mm -hmm. and i feel like there are people doing that kind of thing um i would love to find more yeah. of them you know i think nk john i think the broken earth like I think the fifth season really hits me more as fantasy than sci-fi. Um, but yeah, I, I'm 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 definitely in the side of the pixies and the ogres. Uh, so I definitely would like to read some more. Um, yeah, any of the stuff that you're mentioning, I'll throw on the list. Well, throw that the 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 broken the um the darks trilogy, Marlon James. It's it's you know the the tagline is like this is 
Middle Earth in Africa. Mm-hmm. And it's basically, he's drawing from mm-hmm. all the deep Sounds mythology good. of African peoples, uh, but it's <laughs> as wild and slapdash. And like, there's like, it, it's, it's, it's just nuts. It's bonkers. There's shapeshifters and there's voodoo stuff. I mean, it's like, it's a wild, it's a wild ride. Um, and it's, and it's really fun and, and weird. I wouldn't recommend it to high school kids to adult, but like, it's, it's, it's a romp. You should check it out. I mean, I, I loved when I read the Earthsea trilogy 20 years ago, I remember I really liked them. Um, I also read a lot of fantasy as a younger reader, like middle school into high school. I still think Tolkien is amazing and stands up. But that sort of high fantasy, like swords and dragons and stuff like that, I just don't read a lot of that stuff anymore. Um, I did really like uh, Sunshine. Sunshine by Robin McKinley. I mean, it is, it's a vampire um, novel, so maybe kind of more like horror, but it also, I think, sort of scans as fantasy, but then it's also set in kind of a contemporary era. There are cars and things like that. Um, our friend Justin has been recommending Brandon Sanderson. Uh, he's he's probably what you want. He's like that, he's Swords and Kings, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's yeah. that whole thing, which mm-hmm. I, I agree. I don't read as much of that as I used to either. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, you represented... I don't find it very readable. His, yeah. his prose is, is so bare. It's really, yeah. it's, gosh, I, hopefully don't, you don't lose listeners ever what I'm about to say, but it's like a middle schooler wrote it. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I think there's a, there's a similar analogy to like romance novels in when we get into like high, like that kind of high fantasy, you're there for something else. You're there, <laughs> you're, like, it's, it's not, you know, like the books that we're talking about, we're talking about, like, you know, I mean, it's this question of figurative language is like what literature kind of stands on top of, because it's pretty boring eventually when people just come right out and say stuff. And that's what, and, but then sometimes it can also be nice to just be spoon fed the thing that you're there for. And I think that romance novels and like high fantasy, I mean, I grew up reading so many D&D novels and really they're just they're page turners of not a very literary well, set. Well plotted play in the world that Tolkien created. Like yeah, Dragonlance, totally. Forgotten Realms. And I, you know, there's craft to it. You know, like the, it's the same thing with, with J.K. Rowling, <laughs> who is really good at making you want to keep, re- like, really good at the cliffhanger, you know, and really good at these sort of basic elements of plot craft that drive you forward with excitement. I find, you know, um, I do like uh, Susan Cooper. Uh, and um, Madeline Langle quite a bit. Whenever my sister was reading Harry Potter, I think I gave her the Earthsea novels, but I also tried to get her to read A Wrinkle in Time and 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 uh, The Dark is Rising. And uh, there was another great Susan Cooper novel I read. I forget what it's called, but the, the protagonist's name is Westerly. Um, it's kind of witchy. And uh, what's that book called? I don't know. I... Um, um, we should wrap up. Can I just awesome, very, awesome. very quickly just like ask and maybe guess what weekend at Ripley's was? Because <laughs> I feel like I feel like it's weekend at Bernie's with with Ripley. And I mean, what are we doing with this? You know, well, I you texted me that you had had a dream after and you had listened to our talented Mr. Ripley episode. Uh, I think Lindsay's listened to that as well. Um, and sometime around then you texted me and said, I had this dream called Weekend at Ripley's. And 
I've been wanting to he- I've just been wanting to have like five minutes of like imagining what exactly weekend at Ripley's looks like. A, I don't like. remember, but B, like it's it is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's 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 that it's the the events of of the talented Mr. Ripley, but in the style of slapstick like eighties weekend at Bernie's, they have to they have to make it look like Ripley's still alive. Still alive. Yeah. I thought they <laughs> Ripley kills somebody, and it, like I'm imagining him being portrayed by Owen Wilson, and he like kills his uncle, and he's got he like has to call up Vince Vaughn or uh, right. you know we just, yeah we'll put Put uh, Ripley uh, into Weekend at Burns. Yeah, yeah, Either and he's way, like, it's... Hey, hey, buddy, what wh- do you, uh, are you anywhere near Wilshire? Because I kind of just like garroted my uncle a little bit here. <laughs> kind of a mess. Uh, <laughs> we should, uh, we should, how, how'd that thing with your kid go, by the way? We should really catch up. It's Tom, call me. Uh, I garroted my uncle. Need help cleaning up. <laughs> <laughs> A word that I've never known how to pronounce, only seen it in the tawdry crime novels. Garroted. Garroted. I think it's garroted and not garroted. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Just don't do it. It's bad. Don't do it to people. Kids, don't garrot. <laughs> don't the... garrot your uncle. <laughs> don't garrot your uncle. That's the lesson. Well, on that note, Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the creators and the hosts. We would like to offer a profound thank you to our guests yes. this week, Adam Brock and Lindsay Lejoie. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by me, Chris Bag, And you can learn more about us at UppermiddleBrow.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guests. Thank you. It was fun. Let me know. Send some emails. I'd send, you know, whether I would love to be on your reading list for the summer. I need you asked in your thing, like, what are y'all reading this summer? And I need help. I need something. Oh, yeah. So you don't you don't know what you're reading this summer, huh? Well, you could listen you can listen to our, our our upcoming episodes for some recommendations from other people like you, Lindsay. What are you going to be reading this summer? Um, I'm actually really excited. So I do little themed reading months and syllabi for myself and um, for yourself. <laughs> Lindsay, and I are be, Lindsay and I are going to be great friends. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. <laughs> a couple summers ago, I did a summer of sci-fi where after I read, you know, the Broken Earth trilogy, I was like, I have a gap in my mm. knowledge and I, I need to do some work. So I hit all the big major players. Um, and so now it's been a couple of years and I'm like, summer sci-fi again let's do it um, yeah i have three months planned and i don't have my my little chart (laughs) it's back in portland um but i'm gonna kick things off with you know i don't know the name of the duology but it is arcady martins an empire called memory Mm. so i really want to hit some more so the duology both of them back to back one the hugo I want to hit some contemporary. I also want to really go back to some deep classics, War of the Worlds, um, Guild of Worlds Travels. And I've got in, oh my gosh, what else? A little bit of Dr. Moreau, and then Bring It Forward, read Daughter of Dr. Moreau, the same author who just did Mexican Gothic. So I tried to create for myself, um, for every month, there's a one-to-one of classic contemporary and tried to have a diversity, a male, female, um, grabbed a non-binary author too. So some women of color and try, trying to really go the next step for my big summer of sci-fi reads. So I'm super excited. So that's what I'm doing. I'm going right back. Share your syllabus. Two, two questions. First, uh, when you get home, will you share that with us? Because we would love to publish that along with like this episode or something. Yeah. Um, 
And second, we're contractually obligated at this point to mention Larry Niven. So you should. <laughs> um, the moat, the ring world is okay, but the real classic, I would say, is the moat in God's eye. That's yeah. the great kind of anthropological masterpiece of Larry Niven, in my opinion. Excellent book. Um, also, Lindsay, you're on social media. Uh, if people want to hear about your reading adventures or read about your reading adventures on social media, where would they do that? Yeah, you can find me at Le Joie de Literature. So that that's does... you. <laughs> I've been like, who is this person who is among the three people who likes our posts? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna do a little post when you guys post it, and so I'll share it on on mine. Oh, I'm just I'm only a small Instagrammer at the moment. I started my little book blog on Instagram, and it's been fun. I've, I've reached the point where I wanted to read a book, and I just asked the publisher, "Can I just have it?" And they said, "Sure." Sweet review copies. You've reached review copy status. We should yeah. be doing that bag. We should be we getting should, review copies. But our our Instagram grid looks nothing nearly as good as Lindsay's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Wow, so this is really good. Nice. Um, but that's what I'll be doing. So I'll be using the Summer of Sci-Fi hashtag and um, kind of getting that going. We'll be following it for 100%. Adam, are, are you out there on social media these days? Uh, I just have an Instagram that I basically just like look at my kids' private preschool posts and, <laughs> you know... But you can listen to the uh, Borrowed Beams of Light Corpus on Spotify or Bandcamp, I believe. That's true, Which yeah. Should that's, that's true. A lot of it is sort of sci-fi influenced. I have, uh, that has been mentioned in reviews before. Um, there's songs that sort of sound like a tired dad passed out, like reading wow. Gene Wolfe. Yeah, that's right. Gene <laughs> Wolf, I need to check this out. I love Gene Wolf. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I read the book in the New Sun. That was part of my. The book in the New Sun was great. I loved that, and I recently got the the Knight and the Wizard, and it's okay. But the book in the New Sun, I thought, was really good. He was one I was going to imagine. I was going to mention when you asked about fantasy, novel, and that was at your recommendation too. Did you Did y'all read Sea of Tranquility? The the new um, yes. Emily Saint Saint Mendel. Mendel. Yeah, yeah. Wait, I did. I did. I enjoyed that. I thought. That I thought. Was, yeah, yeah. I thought it was a good little book. Like yeah, it was a. Sense. It was a uh, less ambitious than Station Eleven. Sort of a nice kind of snack of a book. Uh, and then Pir Piranesi. Did y'all do that? The new. Yes. One? That's what I was thinking when you asked earlier no. about fantasy, but hot meal. That. Very that also very was like a great follow up to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Monroe because it was not as ambitious at all. Yep. But I think it really worked as a nice little type. Yeah. Know, yeah. It was so good. I picked it up. I started reading, canceled all my plans for that day, finished it in one go, and then immediately gave the book to my husband and said, you need to sit down and read this whole book right now. And it's it's short. And oh, my gosh, it just gets yep. you right from the beginning. It's excellent. It was super great. fun. It was a lot of fun, everybody. Yeah, thank you. I, ho so I hope much. we do it, it again one day, too. Yeah, let's do this again. Duke's here again, and we sure hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. Thanks again to Lindsay Lejoie and Adam 
Brock. Uh, next week, we're going to do another special episode around summer reading, this time with two of my journalist friends. So uh, be sure to check that out. Um, looking out here, it's still a little rain, but I can see the sun trying to poke its way out kind of to the south. So maybe there's hope I'll be able to dry this stuff off before I get on the road. Anyway, thank you as always for listening and we'll see you next time.